My name is Samit Chakrabarty, and I'm the product manager for civic engagement at Facebook. I want to share a little bit about how we're fighting the downsides of social media on democracy, and also how we're working to amplify the positives. Let's start with the elephant in the room. During the US 2016 election, organizations based in Russia turned social media into an information weapon to undermine American democracy. This was a new kind of threat that was hard to predict, but we should have. But it's not just about foreign interference. For many people, it's an accepted truth that um, aspects of the digital environment are bad for democracy, so much so that social networks themselves are admitting it these days, as we've just heard. There are, there are downsides to these platforms. Our democracies are under strain. They are being undermined. So I want to go back uh, a little bit to this, um, this word democracy. And in these debates, it's, it's used broadly, to put it lightly. It stands uh, for a lot of things. And of course, in one sense, it refers narrowly to, to voting, the, the process of electing representatives. But democracy also means something more nebulous and, and foundational. It's the glue that binds us together as societies. It's trust in institutions. It's belief in the possibility of reasoned debate, of truth, of facts. Platforms like Facebook, it's claimed, are, are dissolving this glue. They're making us paranoid and isolated, entombing us in echo chambers where we can't hear the other side. The family next door who, you know, only a few months ago invited us to a barbecue to, to celebrate a cherished national holiday we now suspect of being Russian bots. What these debates express is, I think, um, a growing sense of a crisis, a civilizational crisis. People feel that the, the foundations and the prerequisites of, of living in a, in a rational society based on the rule of law are melting away. The digital environment is an obvious culprit. It's had such transformative and, and visible effects on the way we communicate, associate, and define ourselves, why wouldn't it be to blame? And these debates aren't just happening in some abstract space. Governments around the world are listening. In the last year, politicians have been toughening up their language on tech companies, and we've seen a flurry of new laws to address these fears which, which lie behind them, whether that's laws against you know, so-called fake news, imposing heavy penalties on, on social platforms who don't remove uh, problematic content, or mandatory filters and fact-checkers to counter misinformation. We've already talked about bots and fake news and how they're challenging um, in different ways our, our sense of identity. In this episode, the, the final in our focus on identity, I wanted to go deeper into the, the wider debate around democracy, which really underpins all of this. To discuss it with me, I reached out to Jamie Bartlett, who's just published a book looking at this question. It's entitled The People Versus Tech, how the internet is killing democracy. Jamie also heads up the Center for the Analysis of Social Media at Demos. Jamie, welcome to the show. Um, Jamie, in, in your new book, The People Versus Tech, you argue that democracy is being undermined and challenged by digital technologies. Could you run through that argument for our listeners? Yeah, it, well, it's, it's, I suppose that, Nobody's fault, really, but we have a, an old form of democracy, a sort of analog form, and a and a brand new digital form of technology which dominates many aspects of our lives. And and I think over the last few months, couple of years, I guess, increasingly, I've seen all these different stories that many of them you'll be completely familiar with now: Cambridge Analytica and Russian interference, trolling, 
homophobia and hate online, cryptocurrencies that can't be hacked. All of these, I think, is a, a, a sort of uh, essentially they're like tremors of these two grand tectonic plates rubbing up against each other. Old democracy, new technology. And so <clears throat> the way I put it is that we have some very, very obvious democratic benefits to digital technology, especially that we now have more access to information than ever. And we can connect with other people and mobilize with other people more easily than ever. But the problem is that those obvious benefits, I think, are blinding us to the deeper problem, which is that a lot of the institutions that actually make liberal representative democracy work a sort of media that's well-resourced, citizens that are capable of taking complex moral decisions, a sort of justice system that people have trust in, elections that people consider to be free and fair, those things are slowly being eroded. Obviously, the title of the book is, is quite aggressive, you know, how the internet is killing democracy. And probably a fairer one would be how the internet as it's currently constituted is, is undermining liberal representative democracies, but that's just not as good on the shelves, is it? So I had to go for the big title. Absolutely. Well, that's interesting. In, in, the, in the first chapter of your book, you describe how tech companies have created a so-called sort of zombie army of citizens too distracted and brainwashed to engage with each other in civic space. But doesn't the flourishing of sort of broad social movements like Me Too, the the anti-gun movement in the US, the net neutrality movement in India, etc., which have often arisen and been popularized through social media, somewhat contradict this thesis? Well, they're the examples that everyone always gives. It's literally like those three. And I can't deny that they're, 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 positive, um, they're positive moves for democracy and democratic engagement. And I say that quite clearly, like there are good, there are good things too. No one can deny that. But the problem, I think, is that what social media has done is it has allowed for groups to mobilise rapidly, sometimes but not always create a bit of short-term change. But I'm not sure whether that's translating into long-term sustainable political movement. I mean, this is the problem with 2011 when we were all delighted that the Occupy movement had turned up. We were delighted about democracy in the Middle East. We were saying, Twitter revolution. Mm. Without understanding that actually you need to turn those things into long-term sustainable movements that are grounded usually on sort of physical communities that have been built up over over often several years. And those things, I don't think they are changing. And even those things and the positives that they bring, I think are being outweighed by a much broader drift towards single issue and identity-based tribalism in politics, which in the long run isn't that. Absolutely. And so we see a sort of um, these sort of flash pan sort of uh, interventions and, and sort of the, the sort of the, these these quick uh, sort of technology sort of uh, utopian views on certain things. And from from my side of the table, it seemed like we had a very utopian vision um, of, of the Internet and technology and then very, very quickly turned to a dystopian um, sort of sort of view. Um, what do you think sort of changed? Yeah, it's that amazing, balance? isn't it? Amazing, amazing how fast that's been. Yeah. What, what, what would you what would what, what would you say are sort of the, the main factors that have driven that that shift? Yeah, it's a difficult one that because I, I and, and strangely for someone that's written a book about this, I'm I'm actually slightly worried that we're now going a bit over the top the other way and we're getting all a bit too negative. 
I mean, there's partly, I think, the just the, the, the disappointment of the sort of jilted lover that we place so much faith in these technologies to liberate us. They were inherently democratizing. They were inherently good for freedoms. And so when that proved, at the very least, not to be quite as clear cut, we drift to sort of rage and anger at these technologies for not having lived up to the promises that they, they, they offered. Obviously, there are other things going on. I mean, some of it is quite broad and structural. Like We are seeing increasingly, you know, the growth of large monopolies. We can see what's happening with stunning surveillance technologies in places like China. We have looked with increasing alarm about how our elections seem to be being affected. People are at the level of the sort of the, the macro level are beginning to to see things and understandably get nervous and worried about it but but it, but what's interesting is that i think it's also at the personal level you know individuals feel like they are connected and addicted to their devices they can feel themselves getting angrier when they go online to debate political issues they worry personally about the information that they are spreading. They look with increasing alarm at their four-year-olds glued to an iPad and wonder what on earth we are building here. And I think when you combine the sort of the personal experience with the bigger sort of broader trends in society and you can link the two things together through these devices and platforms, that's a pretty potent combination. And I, and I think that is that is one of the reasons why sort of trust in in technology, just not any one particular platform, but as a sort of mode of progress has turned so quickly. That's super interesting. We're in those sort of moments where we're, we're seeing a lot of um, significant um, sort of responses by by governments to try and deal with deal with this and try to rebuild trust and uh, regain, uh, in some ways, control um, over over the, uh, digital technologies. Like in Germany, we've obviously seen the NetCG law, which has been widely blamed for sort of causing crackdowns on legitimate free expression. Um, and in the UK, we've seen consistent calls from politicians for crackdowns on social media and the very live conversation at the moment in the UK around uh, the internet safety strategy and white paper and a number of examples on that. Um, what do you make of these responses by government to, to, to these, these, these threats and these challenges? This stuff worries me just as much as unregulated, unfettered technology because governments do have a tendency to want to, to regulate and control everything. And the reality is about this technology, um, it, it allows you to create pretty unprecedented forms of surveillance and I'm really worried that what the government's going to do is try constantly to regulate, especially the ability of citizens to participate freely online, so anonymous groups or even groups, and to express themselves freely online. And they are the good bits of the internet. You know, I'm very worried about a lot of aspects of digital life and think we do need more regulation, but I and free association but that's the obvious place for governments to start to regulate and the truth is all these technologies do create the potential of pretty unprecedented new forms of surveillance and we might imagine they're only ever going to exist in authoritarian 
places of the world, facial recognition technology, monitoring everything we do and so on. But it's not too hard to imagine that democratic governments start to introduce them under the guise of safety and security. And inevitably, that's where it starts, but it get, generally ends up being used for ever more ways of running services efficiently. And before you know it, you might have one government that's very liberal and enlightened, Absolutely, and, and from from my perspective, I'm seeing a lot of shift in the discourse um, from sort of open and free to sort of safety, and the sort of especially in the UK at the moment, the whole conversation is is, is around online harm and the safety. But could it actually not be argued in in some ways that this sort of broader narrative, which sort of books like yours and and, and others have actually sort of contributed to that, and are, are starting to give government some excuse of sort of actually clamping down on free expression as they're trying to deal with some of the challenges that you've posed um, in, in your thesis? Yeah, well, yeah, yes, I suppose. Um, but the, in, in the end, governments, I think, have many more resources to justify what they do than, than my still drastically under-read book. But I'm not too worried about it. <laughs> <laughs> but the, at, the same, but at the same time, like, I... I um, I am I am heartened by the obvious moves both in people's behaviour but also the technology that people have built mm. to encourage privacy, to enhance privacy, um, to build privacy enhanced browsers, messaging systems, um, decentralised networks. But all, all of these things which if you think about them just in terms of what it means now, what it means this year, you might think it's a bit of an overreaction. But I think we've got to think about what might the world be like in 10, 15, 20 years' time. And when you think about it like that, especially with the way politics is going at the moment, when you come to see that privacy is something that you need to protect when times are good, because you'll need it when times are bad. Mm. And I think that... I've I mean, I hope in this book that I've made that quite clear. I mean, I've talked explicitly about the value of people using privacy-enhanced software. I've talked about the danger of government surveillance on free expression. Mm. And yes, that is, I suppose, primarily aimed at the moment at big tech companies, but it's also true of big government. Um, um, you talked a bit earlier about the sort of the, the, the monopolies and the sort of the market that we're seeing out there, and we're you know we're we're following a very sort of um, a very big trend of sort of consolidation of the you know internet infrastructure all the way from the sort of the pipes and cables under the sea uh, through to the to the platforms that we're so um, fond of and that we use you know um, throughout throughout the Western world for sure. Um, what do you see as sort of the, the biggest challenges of that of that consolidation, and, and, and what might be the sort of a, a sort of a response, a, a you know, responsible response by government to deal with that? Um, well, the, the big pro the big problem with the consolidation of, of internet technology, sort of hardware and software, like you say, I, I, I think is that the same tendencies that we've seen in in um, platform companies, which do tend towards monopolies, so whether that's, or, 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 or not necessarily monopolies, but to winner-takes-most markets, yeah. 
that it could be even worse with a general technology like artificial intelligence. So if you're a world beater in AI, you can be a world beater in several industries at once. You can be a world beater in driverless vehicles, in search, in medical research work, and so on. You could end up seeing highly efficient, extraordinarily good um, cross-industry monopoly. Mm. And of course, that would also translate, as it always does, from economic to political power. So more lobbying, more control over the political process, and, and that will turn more and more people off democracy. So I, I think that there's the, the danger is that things could be um, even even worse than they are they are now. Mm. But that doesn't say these services won't be good. The problem is they'll be brilliant. They'll be amazing. We'll love them, uh, and that will make it hard for us to fully uh, critique them. So I. I, I very hard to see how you break up monopolies that are I mean, the European Union can't break up a US-based monopoly. Mm. Um, I think the answer for governments is actually to start trying to encourage much more competition at home. So encourage competition for rival companies to be developed domestically. And some of that is going to involve being much more open with data, because data is the fuel of this encourage startups. Um, one way to do this is the, this is maybe a little bit technical, but you know this GDPR regulation mm. gives you the right to data portability, meaning you can ask companies to give you your data back. Um, no one's going to do that because that's a real pain in the ass. Yeah. But, but, but you would if there were third-party companies that would say, we'll do all this for you, just give us your details and permission, we'll get data, and then we'll help you choose what to do with it. And I think the government could encourage private sectors to help to do that, because then we could use our data and we could spread it around a bit more, we could go to other companies, we could give these new companies the fuel that they need. So I'd like to see a bit more exploration about how we can encourage competition at home rather than worrying so much about breaking up a company that's based in another country because I just can't see how that works. No, absolutely. And I think that from my personal perspective, that's exactly the, um, the solution and, and, and things like data portability are one step um, towards that. But um, we need a way of actually sort of consumers understanding um, what a good company looks like and how it can sort of um, how they can choose on, in a meaningful way between companies that really respect their privacy and and, and, and a free expression rather than rather than other sort of um, other companies that don't um, and have made a sort of very strong business decision um, not to do that. Mm. Um, well, that's good because I mean the thing you, you hear people just say stuff like um, you hear people say, "Oh, we should nationalise these companies." I mean, I don't even, I mean, that's just late. Well, I don't even know what that means. Hmm. Absolutely. I don't know how that works. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. No, for sure. Well, well choice, is, choice is an important um, uh, component to technology, but it's also an important uh, component to, to freedom of information, freedom of expression, and, and, um, and uh, sort of, you know, a thriving liberal democracy, as you say. 
Um, and we've talked a bit about sort of the technology sort of challenges there, but we've we've had a pretty sort of consolidated and centralized sort of media world for, for, for decades now. If you look at Berlusconi's empire in Italy or sort of Rupert Murdoch sort of owning two thirds of the Australian market, do you not see that these old um, sort of monopolies or, you know, con concentration of information control through, through traditional media are actually a bigger threat to democracy than, than, than some of the, the, the newer, shinier uh, challenges that we're seeing through digital technology? Um, no, no, I don't. I mean, I, it's not to say that I don't think that's not a problem. Um, I, 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 and I get, I get, I get this uh, a lot. I mean, what, what, wasn't there bias before when people read The Mail and The Sun? I mean, wasn't there bias before when Conservatives read the Telegraph and Liberals read the Guardian, and I mean that's obviously all true. It's not one thing that needs to be perfect, but I think there are some important differences. Uh, one is that um, at the very least, with old media or, or this this new um, concentration of power with existing non-tech media, if you like, mm -hmm. at the very least, publications are everyone gets to see what everyone else is reading. It's a little bit more public and open. You can understand the editorial positions of the papers that you're reading. Uh, it makes it slightly more easy to interrogate. Whereas when everything is entirely personalized and can be personalized around single issues rather than around a broad editorial position, I think it just gets a lot harder for there to be a healthy public discussion about things. Um, but the other thing is that the, the, the old media, as it's often called, it was not just about the big newspapers. It's also about local newspapers. Mm. They're in a, they're, they're possibly, they're in as much trouble. I mean, they're in more trouble than the big, like the big nationals. They have been decimated. I mean, there's, there's now, I think, half of UK constituencies don't have a local newspaper. to account and that is mainly because they cannot compete with free digital content and this is a massive problem and even if you disagree with the editorial lines of some of these and some of them might be concentrated in terms of ownership they're generally quite well regulated industries profession many of them are staffed by professional journalists who at least have a professional calling to hold the powerful to account there are still problems but otherwise, what you end up what you end up with is a load of bloggers who are only interested in desperate clicks. And so, while I don't think things were perfect or are perfect, um, I'm afraid I, I, I <laughs> I'm afraid I think things are, in many senses, even worse. Can we can we move on to some of the ideas at the end of your book, the uh, the twenty ideas to save um, democracy, and many of them sort of strike me as you know very sensible and necessary, more oversight and transparency around election spending, um, for example. Um, I was more surprised by the suggestion of creating and empowering a quote digital police force um, to patrol yeah. the virtual streets and develop new forms of online intelligence. Um, yeah. What. How do, you, how do you see this sort of playing out and what sort of safeguards do you think might be necessary to, in, to ensure it sort of it delivers on the, uh, on the objectives that you've set out um, in, in your book? Yeah, everyone, um, 
uh, everything here is a sort of ba a difficult balancing act. So the majority of over fifty percent of crime in the UK now is uh, is is online, um, and yet less than one quarter of one percent of online crime results in a um, prosecution, not even a conviction, just a prosecution. So we've got a bit of a crisis going on with the way that the police force, it's a sort of enforcement crisis, that the police force are simply not keeping up with the changing nature of crime. And at some point, people are going to lose trust and confidence in the criminal justice system. No one thinks about this, no one talks about this as an important part of democracy, but it really is, because without it... Uh, what you end up with, of course, is just vigilante groups. And I think, in a in a way, some of the anonymous hacking collectives, some of the child pornography vigilantes that go out there to try to catch these guys, that's a reflection of a loss of confidence in the authorities to legally enforce crime on uh, enforce justice online. We do need to change the way we do policing, and I don't want mass mega surveillance, because that's the obvious answer. What I prefer is that we have old school policing, which is about community intelligence, which is about smart, but targeted, you know, intelligence collection, uh, work sort of going undercover like a digital James Bond who's infiltrating groups hmm. with lawful warrants. I think that's the answer, rather than trying to scoop off everyone's data and use pattern spotting techniques to try to work out predictive crime and so on. But we need to, we need to, um, we need to make sure there's new ways that they can do that. There's new people that are skilled in doing that. But obviously, we're going to probably have to update the legal framework to make sure that's all done with, you know, the right legal oversight. Some of that, I think, some of that is going to be. Um, you know, the police complaint system needs to probably be beefed up to make sure those powers aren't misused. But some of that, I think, is going to be a change in the way that politicians talk. I am sick to death of them saying all the time, we need more bodies on the beat. We don't want any more back-office And I think that's, the, that's almost the opposite of what we need. We need more back-office officers because they're the people that are going online to try to stop online crime, online fraud. A growing amount of white collar fraud is taking place online, and you need amazing digital police officers to try to stop that. So, we don't have precise answers, but I think I'm right in diagnosing uh, diagnosing the problem. Absolutely, and we've we've talked a lot about um, responsibility of you know the companies and state and and, and, and this last sort of uh, you know segment talking about the the police. What do you think is the to, you know, to, to save democracy, to save liberal democracy and, and, and to, for it to sort of um, become um, uh, compatible uh, with the sort of 21st century and the, te the technology evolution, the evolution that we're seeing. What do you think is the responsibility of, of users um, and, and, and the Joe public? How do they, what, what are you saying, what are you seeing that, um, you know, users and, 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 and uh, citizens uh, need to do or change in their behaviour uh, to, to ensure that um, the, these, these fundamental uh, philosophies are, are, are actually sort of complementary? Citizens alone aren't, aren't going to be enough, but I think they do have quite an important role to play. And um, a couple of obvious things, to me anyway, is the first is, I don't know about you, 
you, but I feel like my attention span has dropped um, dramatically in the last few years. I feel like I can't concentrate on things as well. I feel like every time I read two pages of a book, I'm thinking about what's being said online and can I check what's happening. And um, I think it's a sort of citizen's responsibility to try to inculcate a habit of focus and concentration so you're not endlessly distracted by the device in your pocket. Because if you are, or if all of us are, even just by a small amount, we become more irritable, we're less able to focus, we're more easily swayed by the mob, we're more easily aroused by emotional, angry arguments, and I'm afraid I think that is what is happening. Mm. So all beauty try to improve, if you like, our, our relationships with our devices. Um, and that's odd. That's, to me, that's like fitness or diet. You know, you've got to work on it. But also, I think we need to also, we need to understand and appreciate that we are all in some ways culpable for this situation. We're, people are whinging and moaning about Cambridge Analytica and big data monopolies, forgetting that they are the ones that have been fueling this by handing over vast volumes of information about themselves in exchange for ease and convenience. And we may need to, at a personal level, revisit that trade-off and understand that the decisions we make online, the things we click, that we share, the services we use, have political and economic consequences, a little bit like when we started to use fair trade coffee and free-range eggs and we used our consumer power to drive through change. I think we can do that online. You know, we can look for companies that look after our data and use them. We can try alternatives to the normal platforms that we use if we think they're more responsible or if we think they're enhancing our privacy. And I appreciate maybe that's going to be a bit inconvenient. Services won't be quite as good, but that might be a cost that we have to bear. That was Jamie Barlow. You can find a link to his work, including his new book, The People vs. Tech, on the GPD website. Just search in beta. Until next time, goodbye.